0: I want to talk about scripture and church division. If you pay much attention to the way the commercial media covers Christianity, it's clear that disagreements, arguments, and division among Christians is newsworthy. My own denomination, the Episcopal Church, has split, and its relationship to Anglicanism worldwide is also in peril. And I make no pretense to understand all of the fights within my own branch of the church and would never presume to understand those in other branches. And our fights and divisions, of course, are not the first that Christianity has witnessed. For over 500 years, Christianity in the West has been fractured and continues to divide. And of course, before that, eastern and western branches of the church split. Division, then, is not something new to us Christians. And I have to confess at the outset that neither I nor Scripture, as far as I can tell, have a recipe for ecclesiastical glue that will enable us to put the divided church back together again. if that's what you're here for, you can leave now. Um, Instead, even though the church in the West has been divided for nearly half a millennium, I think we're still in the position of learning how to understand our divided state and what that might mean for our engagements with scripture and that's what I want to talk about today. It's tempting to think that differences over scripture and its interpretation and its embodiment lie at the very heart of church division in the West. Was it not after all Luther's insistence on scripture alone which was the catalyst in his disputes with Rome? Well, I think on at least two levels here, the answer has to be no. Now, I think I've ably demonstrated so far that I'm neither a Luther scholar nor the son of a Luther scholar, but my own outsider's view of this is that Luther's approach to scripture and his interpretive practice was much more like than opposed to his late medieval and early modern contemporaries. He was certainly much more like them Then he was like later Lutheran historical critics such as Rudolf Bultmann or Ernst Kazemann. Luther read the Old Testament Christologically. He relied on figural interpretation. And although he spoke of the clarity of scripture, he did not therefore assume that one could simply read scripture apart from being formed to do so within the church. In addition, regardless of the rectitude of Luther's interpretations, it's simply not possible to attribute the divisions within the post-Reformation church to Luther's deviation from a previously agreed upon approach to scripture. That is, Luther was not the first theologian to read scripture in ways that differed from his contemporaries. From the moment scripture gets written down, Christians, like Jews before them, have discussed, debated, and disagreed with each other about how to interpret And embody Scripture in the various contexts they found themselves. Short of that time, when we will know just as fully as we have been known, and until God's law is written on our hearts, Christians have and will continue to disagree, debate, and discuss matters of Scripture. Argument and debate over Scripture cannot in itself be at the heart of church division, because argument and debate is an essential component of having scripture in the first place. That's sort of my first important point. There are a variety of reasons for this. As followers of Christ, we are called to a lifelong engagement with scripture. Learning, knowing, and embodying scripture is not a one-time achievement, but a life's work. Moreover, the contexts in which we struggle to live scripture are always changing. Hence, a faithful interpretation in one context may not suffice in different contexts. Further, Scripture itself invites and sustains a chorus of interpretive voices. Luther was not the first Christian to have substantial disagreements with other Christians over scriptural interpretation. Look at the letters between Augustine and Jerome or Theodore of Mopsuestia's account of origin, to name just two famous examples. In a relatively few number of cases, do Christians actually tear the body of Christ apart over scriptural interpretation? I'd like to suggest that when such divisiveness occurs in debates over scripture, it's not so much an issue of scriptural interpretation as the result of a separation of scriptural interpretation from a variety of other practices. These are the practices needed to keep the body of Christ whole in the midst of the inevitable debate, discussion, and argument that is part of the Christian community's ongoing engagement with scripture. In the time I have left, I want to look at some of these practices, because they're crucial even in a divided church. And I'd also like to look at a couple of passages in scripture which might help us understand and speak Christianly about the divided church. My aim here is to begin but not to conclude a discussion of how we Christians in a divided church might proceed. First, then, let me mention a few of the practices that need to be in good working order for the discussions and debates about scripture, which are integral components of our life in Christ prior to Christ's return, to be carried out without tearing the body of Christ apart. This isn't a list of all the relevant practices. I'm not sure I know all the relevant practices. These, however, seem to be rather important ones. Before I speak of specific practices, though, I must note that all of these practices presume and are held together by love, by the love Christ has for believers and which Christ commands believers to have for each other. All church division is fundamentally a failure of love. All division proceeds from believers assuming they are better off apart from each other than together. Division is a contradiction of ecclesial love, especially love of our enemies within Christ's body. Doctrinal or scriptural differences cannot divide the church unless there is this prior failure of love. Now, truth-seeking and truth-telling in Christ must be towards the top of any list of practices crucial to interpreting and embodying scripture in the one body of Christ. On the one hand, this seems pretty obvious. Debates, discussions, and arguments about scripture or anything else cannot be life-giving apart from issues of truthfulness. On the other hand, Those of us who still bear the lacerations or scars from having had brothers or sisters speak the truth to us in love will recognize how awful and divisive such truth-telling can be. i I got some... well, (laughs) This sort of truth-telling is often a thin disguise for personal hostility. If truth-telling is to be a practice essential to keeping the Christian's arguments about Scripture from being divisive, We'll need to think of truth-telling in christological terms. And here's a brief account of what that might mean. In a passage filled with military images, the apostle Paul commands us to bring every thought captive in obedience to Christ in 2 Corinthians 10:5. It's not that Christ aims to obliterate all thoughts, rather they'll be subjected to Christ's penetrating healing gaze. Bringing all thoughts captive to Christ is a way of establishing or restoring their right relationship to the one who is the truth. For example, think of the risen Christ's engagement with Peter around a charcoal fire in Galilee. Peter's deceit and betrayal is purged and he is restored in the course of being questioned by the resurrected one who is feeding him at the same time he interrogates him. The truth about Peter is never glossed. Nevertheless, the resurrected Christ uses this truth to transform Peter. Now, I've mentioned truth-telling first for two related reasons. The first is that truth is the first casualty of sin. This, of course, makes it much more difficult to recognize sin and our own sin in particular. The second reason is that truth-telling is the first component of the practices of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I want to turn to these two practices as essential for engaging Scripture without dividing the body of Christ. Now, some of you who are here in the discussion after the plenary this morning will hear, you're listening to some of this a second time, just in a little more organized way. To engage in the communal discussion, argument, and debate crucial to faithful embodiment of Scripture. Without fracturing Christ's body, we must be capable of recognizing and naming sin, particularly our own sinfulness. The ability to recognize and name sin is not a one-time achievement, but an ongoing process of transformation and repentance. As our friend Luther began his 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Without a community who is well-practiced at asking for and offering forgiveness, without a community committed to the penitential work of reconciliation, we have little reason to recognize, much less repent, of our sin. If we think that sin is both the first and last word on our lives, then self-deception will always appear to be the easiest and best option. When Christians' convictions about sin and their practices of forgiveness and reconciliation become distorted or inoperative, then Christians will also find that they cannot discuss, interpret, and embody Scripture in ways that will build up rather than tear apart the body of Christ. Rather than shaping and being shaped by faithful life and worship, our debates around Scripture will tend to fragment us a community whose common life is marked by the truthfulness of Christ and regularly engaged in practices of forgiveness and reconciliation will be able to engage in the discussion, argument, and debate crucial to interpreting and embodying scripture faithfully in ways that build up rather than tear apart the body of Christ. And in the absence of these practices, we may well expect that scriptural interpretation and its attendant debates will divide the body of Christ. Now, there's much more to say about these practices, and more practices one might discuss too. I do, however, want to look at a couple of other issues concerning Scripture and the divided church. But before that, I'm, I'm just going to mention one more practice crucial to engaging Scripture without dividing the body. And this is patience. As a way of teasing out some of the issues around patience, I want to focus on what I had often taken to be almost a throwaway line in Paul's letter to the Philippians. In 315, Paul wraps up a long plea to the Philippians to adopt a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that is focused around the patterns displayed to them by the crucified and resurrected Christ, and relying particularly on that passage in 2.6-11. This pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting will lead the Philippians to do certain things and to avoid doing other things, all of which Paul lays out in some detail. Following Paul's admonitions will enhance the Philippians' prospects of attaining their true end in Christ. Paul then turns to himself. He doesn't claim that he's attained this yet, Rather, he presses on to the finish line so that he might win the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. These are some of the most elevated lines in the entire New Testament, in my view. Rather than stopping there and moving on to something else, Paul adds in 3.15, if any of you are inclined to adopt a different pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting, God will reveal to you the proper mindset to adopt. After this impassioned plea, Paul seems willing to allow that others may think differently. Now this is not because Paul is a good liberal and thinks that in matters of faith people should be allowed their own opinions. Rather, he can display a certain detachment from his own argument because he's convinced that God is directing and enabling the advancement of the gospel. Paul does not have to coerce the Philippians into adopting his pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting because he's confident that God will bring both him and the Philippians to their proper end in Christ, as he says in 1.6. It is this steadfast conviction about God's providence that enables Paul to be patient when the result he seeks is not immediately achieved, and it's just that sort of patience which keeps debates over Scripture from dividing the body of Christ. Thus far, I've tried to make the following claims. First, as Christians and Christian communities seek to interpret and embody scripture faithfully in the context in which they find themselves, they can expect and need to engage in discussion, argument, and debate with each other. This is simply a feature of Christian life poised as ours is between the cross and resurrection on the one hand and the return of Christ on the other. For the most part, these discussions and debates do not divide and have not divided the church. Rather, when the body of Christ is fractured, it is because of a failure of love and a failure to maintain the practices I've mentioned above, as well as others, in good working order. I think the upshot of this is that church division is, therefore, the result of a failure to maintain a certain form of common life rather than irresolvable disputes over how to interpret this or that scriptural text. My hope is that as we individually and corporately participate in the lives of very particular local manifestations of the body of Christ, we can properly direct our attention to those practices which are most likely to help us maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Alternatively, we have to remember that our gathering here is shaped by the fact that the church is already divided. Now, this is a very different issue for us than it was for Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists, and others in the 16th century. At that point, the issues were focused on where the true church was located and how to know this. Once the true church was found, All other options simply were not church. While the polemics of this time might provide a measure of entertainment to modern readers accustomed to various types of talk radio, they also kept those involved from dealing with the issues of a divided church, because one's opponents were not really part of the church in the first place. The church was not, in some sense, ever divided. The problems of a divided church as we know it today are really the result of ecumenism. The more Catholics and non-Catholics, for example, recognize each other as true Christians, the greater the problem of their division, the sharper the pain of the fracture. If I were to reflect on this on a philosophical and theological vein, I could do no better than commend to you uh, Bruce Marshall's essay the disunity of the church and the credibility of the gospel, which is in theology today about 15 years ago. Um, Instead, I want to look at some scriptural texts which might help us think better about this situation. Some of you may know the work of Ephraim Radner. His very, very difficult and challenging book, The End of the Church, encourages us to read our current situation through the scriptural image of divided Israel when the, northern kingdom of, when the northern kingdom of Israel broke from the southern kingdom of Judah. Radner thinks that understanding this division in scriptural terms may be a good place for Christians to begin to understand their divisions in the ways that God views them. And, and of course, understanding our divisions in the ways that God does is probably the first step towards moving towards some sort of repentance and healing. And I want to take up Radner's invitation to begin to read our situation of church division through lenses provided by biblical Israel and her divisions, and then go further, pulling in some New Testament texts as well. Rather than seeing Israel's division into northern and southern kingdoms as some sort of climactic event, I think passages like Psalm 106 and Jeremiah 3 invite us to view Israel's division as one of the results of Israel's persistent resistance to the spirit of God. Division is simply one manifestation of this resistance along with such things as grumbling against God and Moses in the wilderness, lapses into idolatry when Israel occupies the promised land, and the request for a human king. Interestingly, Each of these manifestations of resistance becomes a form of God's judgment on Israel. Let me explain this a bit more. Take, for example, Israel's request for a human king in 1 Samuel 8. Although Samuel takes this to be a personal affront, God makes it clear that it's simply part of a pattern of Israel's rejection of God's dominion, which is carried on from the moment God led the Israelites out of Egypt. This rejection of God results in the granting of a king. The granting of this request becomes a form of God's judgment on Israel as kings become both oppressively acquisitive and idolatrous. Um, And of course this is anticipated in 1 Samuel as well. We see here that one of the forms of God's judgment is giving us exactly what we want. If we treat division in this light It becomes clear that division is both a sign that we are willing to and even desire to live separate from our brothers and sisters in christ it is also god's judgment upon that desire our failure to love especially to love our brothers and sisters with whom we are at odds lies at the root of our willingness and desire for separation this separation in the form of church division is God's judgment on our failure to love as Christ commands. Thus, one of the byproducts of Israel's resistance to God's spirit is that their senses become dulled so that they're increasingly unable to perceive the workings of God's spirit. Isaiah makes this particularly clear in uh, chapter six and 28 and 29. And those of you who know the prophets well will recognize that this sort of stupefaction and blindness is a precursor to judgment. At those times when Israel is most in need of hearing a word from God and repenting, they have also rendered themselves least able to hear that word. In the prophets, God's judgment is a precursor to restoration. And importantly there, it's Restoration of unified Israel, as noted in Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel 39. This restored, unified Israel is so attractive and compelling that the nations are drawn to God because of what they see God doing for and with Israel. This blessing of the nations fulfills God's purposes in initially calling Abraham out from among his own people. If we understand the divided church, in the light of biblical Israel and her division, then we face several conclusions. First, division is one particularly dramatic way of resisting the spirit of God. Such resistance further dulls our senses so that we're less able to discern the movements and promptings of God's spirit. Thus, we become further crippled in reading God's word the response called for throughout the prophets to this phenomenon is repentance. Whether our senses are so dulled that we cannot discern the proper form of repentance, whether God's judgment is so close at hand that we cannot avoid it, one can't say. Instead, we are called to repent and to hope in God's unfailing plan of restoration and redemption in Christ. The second set, scriptural texts we might look at are those New Testament passages which deal with unbelieving Israel. Um, Romans 9 to 11 comes immediately to mind. It seems to me there is a right and a wrong way to read our current divisions in the light of this passage. The wrong way is to devote time and energy to figure out which part of the divided church is the natural vine and which parts are grafted in and which are cut off. Instead, we should remember that the God who grafts in can also lop off. There is no place for presumption or complacency here. Instead, we should, in our divisions, try to provoke our divided brothers and sisters through ever greater works of love to return to the vine. If I may quote Cardinal Ratzinger, now Benedict XVI here, He says, perhaps institutional separation has some share in the significance of salvation history, which St. Paul attributes to the division between Israel and the Gentiles, namely that they should make each other envious, vying with each other in coming closer to the Lord. In each of these passages, we see some of the consequences of church division for believers. Division is seen as a form of resistance to the spirit of God. It dulls believers' abilities to hear and respond to both the spirit and the word, which in turn generates further unrighteousness. Division provokes God's judgment and is not part of God's vision for the restoration of the people of God. While both presumption and complacency are real temptations, neither is an appropriate way, or neither is an appropriate response to division. Rather, we are called to sustained forms of repentance, vying with each other in coming closer to God, with the aim of drawing the other to God. Now, in the final passage I want to examine today, we should look at the consequences of church division for the world at large. And in this case, I want to look at Ephesians. At the beginning of the epistle, we are told that God's plan for the fullness of time is that all things should be gathered together under Christ's lordship. Just as God's restoration of Israel brings a reunion of the divided Israel and the infusion of Gentiles, so in Christ, God will bring all things together in their proper relationship to Christ. Excuse me. It's important to note that this includes those principalities and powers which are not yet under Christ's dominion. For Paul's purposes the paramount activity of Christ gathering all things is the unification of Jews and Gentiles in one body through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians 2 is a focus is sorry Ephesians 2 is focused on just this activity by which those near and those far off are brought together into one. This is and always has been God's providential plan for the redemption of the world. Paul calls this plan the mystery which was made known to me by revelation. It is, in short, the good news which Paul has been commissioned to proclaim. Then, in chapter 3, 9, and 10, he makes a claim upon which I want to focus for a minute or two. Paul is reflecting on his commission to proclaim this gospel of the unification of Jew and Gentile in Christ. He claims that God has given him given him the charge, and I'm quoting here, to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the riches of God's wisdom might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenlies. The church, by its very existence as a single body of Jews and Gentiles united in Christ, makes God's wisdom known to the principalities and powers. As it appears here in Ephesians, the church's witness to the principalities and powers is integrally connected to and may even depend upon its unity. What do we make of this in the light of our current divisions? Well, the most extreme way of putting the matter is to say that the church's witness to the principalities and powers is falsified or undermined by church division. At the very least, one must say that the church's witness to the principalities and powers is hindered and frustrated by division. Here, then, are three separate groups of scriptural passages which I think help us understand and speak theologically about church division. Each passage requires a different style of reading. One reads Israel and its resistance to the spirit as a figure of the church, to call the divided church to repentance. The reading of Romans expands upon this to provide some admonitions by way of analogy about how to live in a divided church. And finally, Ephesians implicitly warns of some of the consequences of division for the world at large, especially the principalities and powers. I've tried here to address two different aspects of scripture in the divided church. The first begins from the recognition that all Christians are called to faithfully embody scripture in word and deed in the particular contexts in which they find themselves. This will, by nature, involve communal discussion, argument, and debate. This need not, however, lead to divisions within the church. Rather, it points to the need to have a variety of communal practices in good working order so that we can pursue the debates and discussions required to embody scripture without fracturing Christ's body. This calls us to ever greater love and attentiveness when it comes to the common life of the local communities in which we find ourselves. I've also looked at some selected scriptural texts. Not surprisingly, scripture does not directly address church divisions in the way that we know it. Matthew 18 speaks of fraternal admonition and the importance of reconciliation among alienated Christians. And in addition, Paul talks about divisions within the Corinthian church, but the New Testament does not, and perhaps cannot, imagine Christ's body fractured in the ways that it has been for almost 500 years. Hence, I'm not trying to plumb Scripture's depths in order to see what Scripture says about church division. Instead. These and other scriptural texts can help us begin to develop a scripturally shaped language and sets of categories for talking about our divisions in the present and how to understand the consequences of division. Perhaps most importantly, I would like us to think about how God's judgment on our divisions might result in dulling our abilities to hear and perceive the work of the spirit among us, abilities which are central to our hopes of reading and embodying Scripture faithfully. Thanks.